Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, August 25th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, The Model of Grace, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Enjoy. Good morning, Highlands. It is awesome to be here, and uh, wow, that is such a powerful song, The Great I Am. I hope in the kindness of God here today that you get to see in God's Word the Great I Am. It is truly remarkable what God has done to us. This title of this sermon is um, The Model of Grace. And when I say that, I don't mean a model of grace, I literally mean the model of grace. What God has done for us here in Genesis 15 is in fact the very heart of the gospel. It is the heart of knowing and understanding a God of grace. And God's gonna do something truly amazing. I want though, for the sake of today, for you to imagine, if you could, a place that operates under God's design. I mean that, that really operates under God's design where people, in fact, follow God on earth as they do in heaven. To think about that. The way that the saints who have gone before us and all the angels who are in heaven with God now, if we could follow him the way that they follow him on earth as it is in heaven. It's probably hard for us to picture. I know it is for me. It's because there seems to be such a tension between God's sovereignty and my personal responsibility. The responsibility to truly trust a sovereign God who in fact has a plan specifically for us and not only has that plan but has come and shown that plan to us, has given us the 66 books of the Bible. We live in a glorious time where We aren't hoping for the Messiah to come, but we live in a world where the Messiah has come and we await for him to come again. I remember a long time ago, some years ago, this particular child is well into her adult years, but she came home from school and as would be typical, I asked her, what did you learn today? And she looked at me and she had this look on her face like, finally I have something. He says, you know what I learned today, Dad? I learned that I have rights. <laughs> I said, you do. But in this household, it's run by a fascist dictator. <laughs> and on his good days, it is a home that lives for the Lord. And in fact, it's my responsibility to to have this home to to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To know of his grace. You see, I know that the system itself, the world, is filled with people, and Abram in particular in this story, on point number one here, the journey of good intentions. We intend well-being. We intend for things to be right. We even have intentions of faithfully following God the way that we've just sang. 
The road is paved with a journey that is of good intentions. We've seen it in Abram since the beginning, God's covenant with Abram, which of course just means exalted father or father of many. But of course, Abram has no son, no child. But when this covenant was first established in in chapter 12, Abram has since then failed miserably by lacking faith and at times has succeeded greatly by acting in faith. It looks like my life. And throughout, God has of course been faithful, but Abram still does not have an heir. And this is causing him concern and fear. We in fact won't see Abram's name change until Genesis 17, five when God changes his name to Abraham as the father of a multitude or a father of many nations. But in Genesis 15, this passage is another restatement of the covenant and it begins with God's call to Abram to trust him. One in which Abram is going to say that he believes, but his actions indicate at times very much that he's not seemingly equipped. In fact, I want us to understand that there is nothing in us that is equipped or designed to absorb sin. Even when I am the one that is being sinned against, I simply can't handle it. Because when someone sins against me or when I experience sin, it always, always ignites the nature of sin that is within me. And the process, as James says, is that so I give myself permission then to respond sinfully. How twisted is that? Someone cuts you off on the road and it ignites within you the desire to respond back in some colorful way. And when confronted with it, we sometimes go to this extreme of it makes me want to cry out, it's simply not fair. I didn't start this, that guy started it. I wasn't the one who sinned, it's not fair. But we must always remind ourselves that sin doesn't necessarily play by the rules. Abram is having difficulties. We saw last week through Thomas in Genesis 12, 12, we see when he says, he says, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. He's trying to expedite and make more efficient the plan that God gave him to cross the border But he's concerned here when he says, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. He's dismissing the plan of God with fear, as if God wouldn't provide for him a way to get across the border. And he's conspiring in a different way. Or we see in Genesis 14, 15, and 16, it says, and he divided his forces against them. He's in this battle for Lot by night, and And he and his servants defeated them. A much smaller unit defeated this much larger group and then pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, right? His nephew, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. But God has to remind Abram that it is his protection, not his skill as a warrior. 
Or in Genesis 12, 2, where God has to make it clear that he, he is the source of true blessing. Abram says, and I will make, or not Abram, but God says to Abram, he says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. <coughs> it seems like every time he tells him, I'm going to do this, Abram says, so what you want me to do is go over here and do this. Is anyone else? I, I know it's not just me, right? So we do this. God lays out a plan before us and we think that we're being a help to him. When merely what he's called us to do is to trust and depend in him. Instead, we go out in our life with, with the lack of clarity, even though God's been abundantly clear, and this poses an, an, an impossible world of anxiety upon us. The passage is a narrative, and it records the conversation between the Lord and Abram as God's covenant with Abram. And he restates it like he did in 12. He's restating the covenant. But what we're going to see uniquely different here today is that God and God alone is going to ratify this covenant. He's going to sign the agreement. He's going to dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure that it's abundantly clear that this is God and God alone who sets this promise. <coughs> the passage itself has two cycles of conversation between the Lord and Abram. And it follows a very similar structure. God makes a promise, Abram has a question, and then there's a sign. The second cycle is told in two different parts, which are each introduced with the, the term the sun going down. But Abram's two questions are substantial questions of faith to us today. He basically says, what's in it for me? What will you give me? He also says, how can I know? How can I know that that's really going to happen? Right? In 15.3, he says this, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You've been promising me a son. I'm getting older. Sarai is getting older. I need the son, or this other guy, Eliza, is going to inherit all this because he's the one who's next in line. Again, not trusting God. Or in 15.8, he says, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, questioning God. So it starts off in 15.1. Abram's courageous rescue of Lot in a faithful exchange with the Melchizedek. And then the Lord appeared to him in a vision. It's a rare vision that we see in Scripture. It only occurs here, and it also is in Numbers 24.4 and Ezekiel 13.7. This is the first occasion of a theophany. The theophany itself is a visible manifestation of humankind to God, or of God. But in 15.1, he says to him, do not be afraid. I believe this is to reflect Abram's previous faithfulness, faithlessness to Pharaoh in 1212. 12. 
When he says the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And then also in one, he says, I am your shield. These are similar words that Jesus would say to his own disciples. It's of course ironic that Abram asks his first question, what will you give me, immediately after the Lord just explained what he was going to give Abram. But when he says, I am your shield, there's an obvious metaphor that draws on Abram's previous military victory. And here, of course, the Lord is reminding Abram that he is Abram's shield. But he also says in verse 1, I am your reward. And perhaps this is a gentle reminder, or if not a rebuke, that Abram does not need to look to sinful practices to profit as was the case in 12.16. And in 15.2, despite Abram's great wealth, he himself does not perceive himself to be blessed simply because he still has no heir. He throws out the phrase, Lord God. This phrase contrasts the normal Lord God that we see in God's word It is used only here and in 15.8 in the book of Genesis, but the phrase itself is used several times in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. It's also often used in prayers of intercession in Genesis 18 and 27 and 30 through 32 and 19, 18, et cetera, et cetera. Deuteronomy 9.26, Joshua 7, Judges 16. But the concern seems to be as to whom his fortunes will go to because he yet does not have a son. So in 15.2, he brings up this guy, Eliezer, his kinsman, another relative. This is the first of two alternatives that Abram offers to God since he does not yet have a son with Sarai. So in verse five, he tells him, go count the stars. This is the second metaphor that Abram, Abram's prolific offspring that he is yet to be realized. As many as you can count will be your offspring. And finally, in 15.6, he says he believed God. The word that's used here is the Hebrew word aman. It comes from the same root as the word amen. It carries the idea of absolute certainty. He believed with absolute certainty. We see similar aspects of this in Romans 4, 1 through 3, when it says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's important for us to understand that his belief was God speaking to him first, not just his belief and then God spoke to him. We see in Galatians 3, 6, it says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or in James 2, 23, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. That second word counted or accounted it to him in 15, six. 
This Hebrew word here carries, instead of the idea of certainty, it carries the idea of judgment. It can mean account or evaluate or esteem or consider. But in this case, what it means is to impute, to count it towards him. Psalm 106.31 says that that was accounted to him for righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness because of God's words, because of God's work. Abram's belief was the basis of his consideration as righteousness. It was that for which he was looking. The significance is the fact that the righteousness is attributed here, not earned. God counted it as righteousness. And just as we sang, we see in in 15.7 this divine self-description of the I am. The phrase itself occurs 188 times in the Old Testament. But this is the first occurrence of it. And what it does is it anticipates the covenant name disclosure to Moses. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, you know of Moses and he's going to go to free the Hebrews. It says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. You see, the story of Abram would have been passed down from generation to generation. And the Hebrews would have recognized the great I am. When he said the I am, the great I am has sent me. But Abram yet has one of these questions in verse 8. How will I know? How I know that all this is true. You can tell that it's kind of getting like that long car ride with your kids when you're doing a road trip because don't you wish you had this power, what God does next? Right here in 12, he causes a deep sleep. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But wouldn't it be great though? You could just sit there, it's like, thank you, that was a fantastic question. Now... Right? But I digress. So, but he caused a deep sleep. The word that's used here is the same word that was used of Adam in Genesis 2.21 when the Lord performed a surgery and he took his rib and he fashioned the woman. And in this particular case, what he's doing is he's saying, you know what? I got this, Abram. No more shortcuts. No more coming up with expedient ways to get to, to, get to what you want, the son. You're going to just lay down here and I'm going to put a promise on you that can never be broken. There will be no way of losing. I'm going to take out all the possibilities of it not coming true. He says to him in 13 that he wants him to know with certainty. It's literally saying know with knowledge. Both words, know with knowledge or know with certainty, is the word yada. You've, of course, heard the phrase yada, yada, yada. He wants him to know with knowledge, with absolute certainty. But the certainty that he's assuring him in this context 
is that there's 400 years of slavery that is coming to your people. But when you come out of that slavery, you will come out of it with great possession. In 15, he says, you will go to your fathers in peace. The Lord's promise of physical protection for Abram's life. Perhaps another reference to Abram not needing to fear and to be filled with such anxiety. But in 17, this is where it all changes. It begins the second explanation of the Lord's covenant promise to Abram. We don't have to look at these promises as two different traditions. Instead, due to the significance of this promise, the narrator is emphasizing the significance of the event by repetition, which is normal or common practice within the Hebrew language. But what's about to happen here is point two. God is going to ratify his covenant. God is going to ratify his covenant. So we come on to the scene. The scene would look quite ominous to the modern day observers. There's five bloody animal carcasses on the ground. Three of them are split in half from nose to tail with the halves separated just a short distance from each other. But Abraham's time, it would not have been so menacing. The arrangement of divided animal carcasses would have been instantly recognized as the setup for making of a type of blood covenant common in these days. Abraham, of course, would have immediately understood the scene. And it's a covenant is a kind of promise. It's a contract. It's a binding agreement between two parties. But the 15th chapter of Genesis reiterates the covenant God had made with Abraham at his calling in chapter 12. Except this time, God graciously reassures his promise with the visual of his presence. He asks Abraham to find and kill a heifer, a ram, a goat, a dove, and a pigeon. And then Abraham was to cut them in half, except the birds, and lay them in pieces in two rows, leaving a path down the center. The scene of this covenant is that these animals are cut in half and the dead birds are on either side of it and the two of them would walk between the animals, signifying as they walk between these animals that if I don't keep my word, if I don't keep my promise, if I don't own up to this agreement, may I be as cursed as these animals. This is mind-blowing what he's doing here. This is the process of a blood covenant. God was confirming primarily three promises he made to Abraham. Number one, the promises of an heir, or heirs, I should say, many nations. Number two, of land, the promised land that would ultimately come to his people. And of three, the blessings of God. You see, the blood covenant communicated an oath the parties involved when they walk between the path of the slaughtered animals are saying, may this be done to me if I do not keep my oath. However, there was an important difference in the blood oath that God made with Abram. Because when the evening or when the sun went down, God appeared in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces. But he had caused Abram to fall into a deep sleep, into a thick and dreadful darkness. 
that came over him in verse 12. And thus God alone passed through the pieces of dead animals. And the covenant at that point was sealed by God and by God alone. Nothing depended on Abraham. Everything depended on God who promised to be faithful to his covenant. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. God didn't have a higher being to support himself, so he simply walked through it on his own. The specific blood covenant is also known as the Abrahamic covenant. The blood involved in this covenant, as with any blood covenant, signifies the life from which the blood comes. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. But the Davidic and the Abrahamic and even the Mosaic covenant where the sprinkling of blood upon the, the tabernacle and the scrolls, all in fact are copies or shadows of yet a better covenant that is to come. Look at Hebrews 9, 23. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies, these covenants, copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You see, the lives of animals could never remove sin. The life of an animal is not a sufficient substitute for a human life. Hebrews 10.4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the blood of bulls and goats was just a temporary appeasement until the final ultimate blood covenant was made by Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. In Hebrews 9, 24 through 28, it says to us, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Thank God we have an advocate. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not on his own. That's known as Yom Kippur. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Or Luke twenty two twenty, it says, and likewise the cup after he had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant that is in my blood. You see, the shadows became realities in Christ who fulfilled the Old Testament blood covenants with his own blood. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you, are in, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
To put it simply, a blood covenant is a promise made by God that he will choose a people for himself and he'll bless them. The covenant was originally for Abraham's physical descendants, but later it extended spiritually to all those who, like Abraham, believed with absolute certainty, with absolute judgment of imputations of the works and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. When God passed through those animals by himself, he was setting up his only begotten son who would ultimately pay the price. That was the covenant that he made with Abram. If you blow it, Abram, I'll suffer the consequences. If I blow it, I'll suffer the consequences. You can't lose. All you have to do is believe. But the problem between God's sovereignty and believing <coughs> and my personal responsibility clash like this. Don't tell me that all I have to do is believe. Give me a checklist. Show me a New Testament Leviticus that I can work my way through. Show me in Nike Christianity how I just do it, and then I will be saved. Don't tell me that all I have to do is believe. But that's what his word tells us. All those who believe in him will be saved. And if you are saved through that belief, then you are an heir of Abraham and the promise that God made to him. Galatians 3, 7 says, know then that in those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God's promise of eternal blessing is given only on the basis of faith in the saving blood of his son, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9, 12, he says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Point three, the very heart of this message. Honest questions do not always mean doubt in God. Honest questions do not always mean doubt in God. This week, as you break into your small groups, I ask you to ask honest questions. Wrestle with God's sovereignty and your personal responsibility. Abram asked the question, what will you give me? You see, God wants us to trust him in our fear, with our security, and for our provision. That's hard because for many of us, we struggle with that. Just as God's Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. We have a tendency to say, just a day? You're just gonna give me a day? What about a week? What about a year? What about my retirement plan? We live our life in fear without security, knowing 
that God has provided it all. Rather than try to provide for these on our own, Abraham had tried to provide for each of these three things on his own. He had fear with Pharaoh. He had security with Lot. And he looked at provision with Pharaoh. Belief in God makes possible what our sin made impossible. Righteousness before God. If you will only sit down, shut up, and listen to him, and do as he has commanded you to do, no shortcuts, no paths another way, I can walk in confidence knowing that if the Lord takes me now or 50 years from now, it will be a part of his plan. I need not fear, for my God is with me. And his call to me is to be quiet, be still, and know that I am God. To yada, yada, he is God. What did God give Abram? He gave him his presence his assurance, his provision, his promise, his name, his covenant, and he even came down and signed and sealed it in person. But how will I know? This is a question of assurance and certainty. God wanted Abram to know with certainty, yada, yada, to know with knowledge, The covenant ritual was intended for Abram's assurance. The covenant is the seal of his promise. I know because he said it. I know because I know him. I know his name, Yahweh, his faithfulness to his word and his faithfulness to his people. How will Abram know it? Abram will know what God said is true because God himself said it. God sealed it. He ratified it. And because of that, Abram believed it and God counted it righteousness. But so what? Right, you're sitting out there, you're saying, Jeff, but you don't understand. Tomorrow's Monday, I gotta go to work. How does this apply to my everyday life? That's great what he did, thank you. But what do I do with this? Our trust is in God's grace is the very thing that identifies you as a Christian. If you're riddled with anxiety, if you're performing with great anger, you're not representing the king of kings, you're representing you. You're showing with great confidence that I have no trust in this God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. That word poema means poem. We are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God's sequence of grace is our model of life. Luke 6.42 says to us, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let me tell you what this grace looks like. Imagine for a second that we're a singular body, and the singular body has committed a horrible sin against me personally. The model of grace says this, before I even come and talk or confront or come after you in some Matthew 18 process, I in fact come to you before I go to the throne room of God and I say, Lord, forgive my brother, forgive my sister, and help me to never hold that against them. And then when I come to you, I come to you not talking to you about why you suck, but I instead come to you and I say this, will you forgive me? Because the idol of my control, the idol of my self-seeking approval, the idol of respect, the idol of my reputation, the idol of my security, the idol of my fear has taken advantage of me in the, in the consequences of our broken relationship. Will you please forgive me? That's radically different than what we do as a society, is it not? We go after it with our American justice ideals because you got rights. In the eyes of God, you have no rights but a sovereign king who is good. That's what you have. You have the right to pursue the beauty and the loveliness of Christ, to surrender your soul to him and say, I am yours and you are mine. And I have been set free from the law and the bondage of that sin so that I can worship God. And it is in that kindness of God and his grace that he will lead many people to repentance. That's how our God wants us. You see, repentance and restoration and reconciliation, these are not the gift to God, but they are God's gift to you. Conflict and confrontation proceeded without grace is just condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us to the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, look at that, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of that, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what he's done for us, this model of grace. You see, it is justification by grace through faith alone, just as it is sanctification by grace through faith alone. Imagine again a place that operates under God's design, where people follow God on earth as they do in heaven. I hope it's easier to picture. There's a continuing wrestling match within our fleshly desires between God's sovereignty and our personal responsibility. I wanna ask those who are gonna be serving as communion today to start. 
serving the elements. During communion, I would ask, and even when the band comes here, that you would remain seated. Remember, there's two cups. The bread is below the, the, the juice. But I want you to take prayer time of reflection and consider two particular questions. Listen to me on these questions. If Jesus Christ did not come to condemn the world but to save it, what are you doing? And if Jesus Christ did not come to be served but to serve, where are you serving? Think about that. As we go to his throne room with his body and his blood, and we do so, as we will say, in remembrance of him, it is my prayer for each of us that we would come to know the God of promise that calls for us to be still and to know that he is God with absolute certainty, with absolute confidence that you are his and he is yours, here to be his servant. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. This is him who laid upon that cross, who fulfilled all of the copies and gave his life for us so that we would eat this in remembrance of him. And as he also took the cup, he said, this represents my blood, the new covenant, this superior covenant to all other covenants, where he has died and satisfied the wrath of God that was due unto you and me, where he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf to fulfill the covenants. Whenever you drink this, do so in remembrance of him. Let's stand together and let's close our time in worshiping this great God, the great I am, the one who paid it all. May we sing with our whole hearts to the glory of him. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we find our salvation. But it is his grace that compels us to go forward and to love and minister to people. And this will require us to die to ourselves and to step out in faith, trusting in God and rejoicing over what he does, not what we do. The prayer team, as we said earlier, will be down here in the front. If you're needing of prayer, we invite you to come down and be a part of that. To come before the throne room because he promises you, if you're weary and you're heavy laden, he will give you rest come to him. May we as a congregation grow in his grace and in the knowledge of his son. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.